This week's parasha describes to us how the Kohen Gadol's clothing included bells and whistles, or bells and pomegranates as it happens. There's a difference of opinion between Rashi and the Ramban about exactly what the design looked like. And we are going to also explore the question of why the noise wherever the Kohen Gadol went that there were these bells ringing. Why does the Ramban feel that they are like apples rather than like pomegranates? And what does that teach us? A beautiful lesson about the job of the Kohen Gadol and about the power of Balei Tshuva. When describing the meal, the long tunic that the Kohen Gadol had to wear, the Pasuk tells us that on the edge, on the, on the hem of the meal, you had these woolen pomegranates. All the way across the hem. And then it says that there were golden bells inside them. Now the question is, what does it mean inside them? Rashi explains that despite the fact that these pomegranates at the bottom were actually hollow, so you can imagine they were kind of like domes, nevertheless, when the Pasuk says that the bells were in the pomegranates, that does not mean that the bells were actually inside that little dome formed by the pomegranates. It means that they were interspersed between the pomegranates. So it goes pomegranate and then bell. In Rashi's description between every two pomegranates, there's one bell hanging from the fringe, from the hem of the meal. Now the Ramban has a question to Rashi. The Ramban says, so what's the point then of those pomegranates? They serve no purpose. Ah, you'll tell me, maybe they're decorative. If they are purely decorative, then asks the Ramban, if that's the case, why make them like hollowed pomegranates? Why don't you fashion them like golden apples? And then one of the commentators of Rashi defends Rashi by saying, I'm surprised what prompted the Ramban to give the description of apples more than the description of pomegranates. Okay, so let's understand what exactly is the Ramban asking and what exactly is the difference of opinion between the Ramban and Rashi. That the issue the Ramban has with Rashi's interpretation is the concept of these pomegranates being hollowed out. It's a very obvious question. If the bells are not going to sit inside the pomegranates, why do the pomegranates need to be hollowed? And it's, a, it's apparently a good question. But even if that is what's bothering the Ramban, it's actually still not a good enough explanation of the Ramban's issue. Because if the Ramban's entire question against Rashi is, why are these pomegranates hollow? So why does he suggest an alternative whereby, number one, they're gold, and number two, they're apples, not pomegranates? If the whole issue is that they're hollow, then just say, don't make them hollow. So perhaps an explanation is, Or maybe the answer is that this is not the first time we've encountered something that plays a role in the Mishkan or later in the Beis Amikdash that has elements that are there purely for decoration. Look at the menorah. What do the menorah has as deco- have as decorations? 
gevim kaftarim ufrochim. It had these kind of cups, it had little button-like shapes, and it had flowers. Vakaftarim oyukimin tapuchim. Now these button-like elements were apparently similar to apples. So maybe that's what the Ramban wants to do. Make a comparison. Says the Ramban, according to you, Rashi, it sounds like the pomegranates on the fringe of the meal are only there for decoration. So then, if they're there for decoration, then they should not be in the shape of pomegranates. They should resemble another fruit that we already know is used for decoration in the Mishkan, the apples that were part of the menorah. So maybe that's what the Ramban is saying. Not questioning just simply the fact that it's hollow and then suggesting something else, but questioning the fact that it looks like a pomegranate when decoration, Rashi, you're saying it's for decoration. What decoration? Decorative fruits in the Mishkan are actually apples. But even that doesn't give us a full explanation because Alev, Let's ask the Ramban. Why do you believe that in the Mishkan all beauty fruit have to be apples? Why? And Beis Adas Rashi, if you go with Rashi, if you go with this explanation, then according to Rashi, why would Rashi have seen a distinction that the menorah, the decorative fruits, are apples, but in the Me'il, the pomegranates are also decorative, so why are they pomegranates? Okay. So there's obviously something over here that we're missing about these pomegranates versus apples. And in order to explain that, let's explore for a second why are there all these things on the hem of the meal in the first place. So let's look at the bells. When describing the function of these bells at the end of the meal, the Pasuk tells us that they're there, that you could hear the Kohen Gadol coming when he would enter into the holy places where he would have to do his job. And this was such an important part of the Kohen Gadol's service. The Pasuk says very clearly that because you'd hear the sound of the Kohen Gadol coming, that protected him that he would not die from being in this intensely holy place. And of course you can understand the corollary if there was none of this noise. So why do we need noise? What, what do you need the ringing of bells when the Kohen Gadol comes in? And why is it that a prerequisite of the Kohen Gadol entering the holy space is that he is accompanied by the jingling of bells? logic would tell you this should be a place of silence. It's an inner sanctum. And the Pasuk tells us that Hashem doesn't manifest in great noise. But in silence. Or at least a quiet voice. In fact, this question is intensified when you consider the Kohen Gadol himself. When the Kohen Gadol went to his ultimate avoider, which is in the Kodesh HaKadoshim on Yom Kippur, he didn't wear those special garments. He, wear, he wore the simple white garments, which means there was no meil, which means there were no bells, which means there was no noise. And that's the ultimate service of the Kohen Gadol. So why the noise when he comes into the general sanctuary? So Ramban Kosovatamadovar, 
The Ramban gives an explanation, which is actually a relevant explanation that we could apply in our own lives, which is, If a person would arrive unannounced to the king's chamber, that would be a capital offense. And we can relate that you also don't arrive home unannounced. You kind of give somebody a little bit of warning that you've arrived. So the jingling of the bells was a means of almost getting permission to enter into the Abish's space. Ah, you'll ask. So why surely the Kohen Gadol would have to ask permission to go into the holiest of places on Yom Kippur? Why there is there no noise? Surely there's all the more reason to need permission to enter at that particular point in time. Because Yom Kippur is a special day and Yom Kippur is a time where the Abishta says you don't need anybody to represent you. It's a time of absolute openness between the Abishta and us and the Abishta is saying you don't need an invitation, you don't need an, a representative, you don't need a chaperone. Just come directly into my inner sanctum and you're welcome. If you take the Ramban's attitude, the Ramban's perspective, then the ringing of the bells is not part of the service of the Kohen Gadol. It's a precursor. It's prep. It's the intro to him serving in the Kodesh. But we know that every single detail associated with the Kohen Gadol's avoider must be absolutely precise. And especially if you consider that this is a prerequisite that carries a capital offense with it. And especially if you consider the bells didn't only ring before the Kohen Gadol arrived to announce his arrival, they continued ringing wherever he moved while he was doing the Avoida. That would imply that the sound of the bells is relevant to the actual service of the Kohen Gadol as well. And we need to understand why. So the clue will be because the Kohen Gadol is our representative. One explanation is The Kohen Gadol walked into wherever, whichever part of the base Amigdash he walked in, and whichever service he did, he was our representative, our agent. So therefore, that every time the Kohen Gadol walked into the holy place, it was as if he was symbolically taking us all with him. We all enter the holy spaces when the Kohen Gadol does because he is our proxy. So, one of the things that we know in many places, particularly in Chesidus, Asher Havoidus that the unique service of a Baal Tshuva, which is a service that's the person who comes in from the cold, a person who feels distant from Hashem. And so therefore, the overriding sensitivity of the Baal Tshuva is to run away from that which is negative. That is usually accompanied with passion and clamor, a lot of noise. Like a person who's running away from a threat of a threat on their life. The person will be screaming, the person will be clamoring. And that's how a Balchuve is too. So a noisy avoider represents the avoider of somebody rushing to get out of a bad situation, i.e. the Balchuve. And in a certain respect, every single one of us has an element of our service of Hashem that is the more noisy element, even if it's a person who has never done Averis. Why? Because any time that a person contemplates that fundamentally as humans we are infinitely distant from Hashem, 
Either because our nefesh Abahamis still has the upper hand in our lives, which causes us to feel completely selfish and distant and independent from Hashem. Or even if a person is far more refined and is conscious, acutely conscious of their neshama, which of course is a reality and an, and an, an item, an entity of holiness. But still, it's not absolute submission to Hashem. If I'm conscious of my own neshama, then I'm still conscious of self, and self is distance from Hashem. When a person recognizes that, then the person becomes agitated that I've got to do something, and of course it will be with a certain amount of noise and chaos to get away from this position where I feel separate. Like the very famous response of the Baal Shem Tov to the accusations. Why do the Hasidim gesticulate and shockle and make all this noise when they're davening? So he explains, it's similar to a person who's drowning in the sea. He's going to wave his hands and splash in the water and scream on the top of his lungs to attract attention so hopefully somebody will save him. Nobody is going to ridicule the person who's fighting for their life and therefore flailing and making a whole big deal and no difference during davening as well. Then you'll say, one second, how can you approach Hashem with all this noise and chaos if it says clearly that Hashem is not to be found in a place of noise? So the answer to that is you've got to read the Pasuk more carefully. When you're dealing with the level of Havaya, very elevated and clear element of godliness, then there's no noise. So if a person wants to make themselves open to connect with and to manifest the level of Shem Havaya, which is completely beyond the entire created structure, then then the person has to go silent, which means that the person has to reach a point of complete bittle to Hashem. You go completely silent. You don't stick out at all so that you can invite Shem Havaya into your life. But when you're not yet at that level and your avoid is very much about escaping the sense of self and ego and distraction, which means that the person is still trying to encounter a lower, a lesser level of godliness represented by the name Elikim, because Elikim still allows the possibility of creation and therefore of, of individual existence, yes. Then in our then the person is still in the noisy, chaotic space of crying out to Hashem. So it's valid that in either the Balchuva scenario or in the scenario of any person who feels that they're not as close to Hashem as they need to be, it is valid to clamor, it is valid to make a noise. So that would explain why typically the Kohen Gadol service included this jingling of the bells. Why? Because he's representing us. Because he had to take with him into the holy spaces. He had to include every single Jewish person, including the Jew who is still making a noise, flailing their arms because they're trying to do tshuva. So the Kohen Gadol had to represent and carry them with him. 
In fact, that's exactly why the bells are at the fringe, at the bottom of the meal. Because the noisy part of serving Hashem is very much associated with people who are at the bottom of the spiritual pile. People who they, the nature of their service of Hashem is defined by their lack of connection, by their distance. Which is why the Kohen Gadol was warned that we have to hear the sound of the bells because otherwise it could be a dangerous exercise. The message to the Kohen Gadol is that your care and concern and involvement of every single Jew, including this most distant Jew, is what your own life depends on. If the Kohen Gadol ignores that part of the noisy service of Hashem, meaning, meaning that this is a Kohen Gadol who does not want to sully his hands with those people who belong on the fringe, and he may have a very good reason why he doesn't want to get involved in that segment of the society because he prefers to align with a higher, more developed degree of connection to Hashem where you're silent and bottle. We say to the Kohen Gadol, it's all very nice of you to have these aspirations, but if you ignore the Jews who are at the fringe, then the Kohen Gadol could, God forbid, lose his value, his position, and even his own mitzvahs. Because the reality is that how do you serve Hashem as a connected part of the entire Jewish community, warts and all, from the heads and leadership, right down to the woodchoppers and the water carriers. So the Kohen Gadol who doesn't get that, doesn't deserve to be a Kohen Gadol. He has to include and bring with him every part of the society. So then you'll have the question, why not on Yom Kippur then? Why is Yom Kippur radio silence? So all of that is relevant to the Kohen Gadol's usual service during the year. Where he only goes so far, no further. He only enters the section where the menorah and the Mizbech and Mizbech Azov and the Shulchan is, but he doesn't enter the Holy of Holies. Because when you're still, you're in a holy environment, but not in the holiest environment, then you're still very much aware of difference. These are the great Jews, these are the simple Jews which is why you then have to represent the simple Jews or the Balchuva people or the people trying to become Balchuva and the way you do that is you have to represent the noise of their efforts in the bells at the end of the meal but when the Kohen Gadol goes into the holiest place on earth on the holiest day of the year silence because at that time of the year Every Jew is holy. Every Jew is compared to a Malach. Why? Because that is a time where the essential connection, the, the core connection between Jew and Hashem is revealed. Because every single Jew on Yom Kippur, even the most marginal Jew, stands with complete connection and union with Hashem. As the expression goes in Hoshayna, where the deepest part of the Neshama is 
is alive and therefore the person feels absolute oneness with Hashem. So if that's the case, so then when all of these people enter the Kodesh HaKadoshim, how so? Because the Kohen Godel, their representative, is in the Kodesh HaKadoshim. Then it's not an experience of somebody who was once distant and has now been drawn close which would require the whole chaos and clamor that goes with that process. This is a moment where the essence of every Jew comes to light, and therefore the absolute bittle and connection of every Jew comes to light, and there's no need for noise. You don't have to prove anything because you're there already. You don't have to tell your story or sell your story, because it's just clear that this is your story. Now, with that information, we can go back to the distinction between the Ramban and, the, and Rashi's views on the nature of the of the the, the, pamoinim, the, the rimoinim, the uh, so-called pomegranates. So let's look now. The perspective of the Ramban was that if really the pomegranates were meant to be just for decoration, they should have been apples. And how that's different to Shittas Rashi, who says that unlike the menorah in this particular scenario, actually what's there for decoration should be a pomegranate. Because an apple and a pomegranate actually represent two different kinds of Jewish experience, or specifically two different kinds of marginal Jew. We as the Jewish people are sometimes compared to a pomegranate, sometimes to an apple. What's the distinction? When we're compared to an apple, it's to indicate the ultimate greatness of the Jewish people. Whereas the pomegranate indicates that we're not as good as we should be. It represents the Jews who have fallen off the apple cart. As the Pasuk says in Shirashirim, it says that your uh, temple is like, temple of your head, is like a pomegranate that is split open. Based on that, the Gemara says, that even the so-called empty among you, the empty Jewish people, they're also filled with holiness. As that same statement in the Gemara concludes, and we know it very well, that even the so-called empty Jews are filled with mitzvahs, like a pomegranate is filled with seeds. So the apple represents the ultimate Jew, and the pomegranate represents the Jew who's really not where they should be, but still nonetheless filled with toiv and kedusha, because that's the nature of being Jewish. So if I'm looking through the lens of Rashi, which is the simplest explanation of the Pesukim, that means which means the simplest view of a Jewish person. If I'm analyzing a Jewish person essentially from the outside, then if a Jew is at the fringe, at the bottom of the me'il, in all likely that Jew is empty of many spiritual components they should have. So then there would be great symbolism in having these pomegranates all the way at the bottom of the meal to tell you these are the Jews who are at the bottom, these are the Jews who are empty. According to one version, these are the Jews who are wanton sinners. And nevertheless, they still get taken by the Kohen Godel into a place of holiness. Because because they are fundamentally part of the Jewish people. Not only are they part of the nation, but they're filled with mitzvahs. But if you look from the perspective of the Ramban, 
Whereas the Ramban does look at the Pshat of the Psukim, but in his own words, he says, I also look for those things that would be appealing to people who appreciate the deeper elements of Torah. So therefore, the Ramban's attitude is, He wants to understand the deeper reality of the Jewish people. When you look at a Jewish person from a deeper perspective, and you acknowledge the nature of their neshama, they're not even shy to do averis. Every Jew is a tzaddik. That's why the Ramban's view is that the sound of the bells is not part of the Kohen Gadol's service inside the holy precinct. It's just a preparation. It's not part of that Because once the Kohen Gadol is inside the Beis HaMikdash and at service, then at that point, he's now representing the Jews as they are in their essence. Tzadikim, who are quiet, silent, with absolute bitul tashem. So, which is why the Ramban has a particular question. If, in fact, the designs at the bottom of the meal were, were supposed to be purely for decoration and not to hold the bells, then they should have been golden apples. Or at least apples like the golden apples on the menorah. In other Ramban is saying, if those pomegranates are not there to serve a particular function, but they're just there to represent the Jewish people, then then if you want to represent the Jewish people, and it's supposed to be decorative, in other words, represent the beauty of the Jewish people, then don't talk about their pomegranate-like reality, that they are empty Jews, but don't worry, because they're also filled with mitzvahs, like a pomegranate with seeds. We should rather represent how beautiful they are, beyond what the eye can see. Every single Jew is a golden apple of Hashem's eye, and not just an empty vessel with some mitzvahs inside. And the Ramban will argue this is exactly how it's represented on the menorah. Where the seven branches of the menorah represent seven different ways through which people hidden serve Hashem. In the menorah they used apples to represent this beauty of the Jewish connection to Hashem. Why not also on the me'il? Om nom. But now to appreciate where Rashi is coming from, we need to understand that, yes, at face value, the noisy service of Hashem is less impressive than the silent, submissive bitl to Hashem represented by the white clothing of the Kohen Gadol on Yom Kippur. But, guess what? Even that so-called noisy avoider representing the Baalei Tshuva or less, the Rimoinim, the people who are Reikonim Shabach, has a certain advantage even over the complete bitl represented by the Kohen Gadol in the Kodesh HaKadosh. When a person serves Hashem with that stoic, stable, silent commitment to Hashem, it actually has its limits. Of course, the person is completely nullified, submissive to Hashem. But it's all a very contained, healthy, structured reality, which implies limitation. But once there's noise and chaos, 
The nature of noise tells me that this is somebody who's breaking out of a structure. Somebody who cannot contain their excitement or their passion. That's why the person's screaming, because they actually can't contain the energy. That's actually one of the reasons why a Baal attains a spiritual level that even a Tzadik cannot attain because the Baal breaks boundaries. Because it's actually in that agitation and in that chaos and in that clamoring for Hashem's connection that you see the Neshama really has no bounds. The Neshama is really powerful and the Tzadik doesn't necessarily experience that because the Tzadik is quite you know, orderly and, and structured. Which carries for us that final generation waiting to greet Moshiach, an incredible lesson. Many people have the complaint or the argument. Everybody realizes that we're a very lowly, disconnected generation, and so everybody has to invest effort in outreach, in trying to engage people and connect them with their spirituality. And nobody could just sit put, even if where you're sitting is a beautiful environment within the space of Torah. Don't wait for people to knock on your door and say, please teach me. We all acknowledge that you've got to go out there, find the so-called lost Jews, and bring them back on board and turn them into Balichuva. Everybody agrees with that in every society within the, the, the Jewish world. But people argue, But why do you have to make such a big noise about it? Why do you have to be in the street? Why do you have to draw attention to yourself, make a spectacle about offering Jews to put on tefillin? Why do you have to make a big public spectacle about putting up mezuzahs? giving tzedakah, etc. Previous generations didn't have these great public drives and campaigns for mitzvahs. Why now? To which the response is, You read the Gemara Soita and read the signs that are supposed to tell us we're living in the time of the generation that greets Moshiach. It's us. And you'll see there that it's also part of the prediction is it'll be a very lowly spiritual generation. The fringe. So therefore we have to know based on this week's parasha that the nature of the fringe and the hem of the garment is it needs bells, it needs noise. The parasha is teaching us that the way you get that kind of a Jew who is so removed into a space of holiness takes a bit of noise, a bit of excitement. In fact, as we've already illustrated, the ultimate expression of the neshama and therefore the ultimate state that a person can reach is the state of tshuva, which is a noisy state. Plus, it's a great neutralizer for negative noise. Another perspective. When you notice that everybody else is screaming from the rooftops about their wayward, corrupt views and values, 
like the great noise of Rome after the destruction of the Beis Hamikdash. Everything that belongs to the other side of impurity is no longer in the closet. It's no longer hidden. But with the greatest noise, publicity, and celebration. So what are you going to do? Go fight them? How do you cancel the sound of this great, weird noise that celebrates everything that is corrupt? How? You've got to fight fire with fire. As the expression goes, How do you make an axe? The handle is made from wood. So the axe to chop the tree is made from wood, which comes from a tree. How do we counter the great noise of the strange perspectives in our world with noise of our own? And in the same place, the same streets that are screaming all this nonsense, those are the streets we're going to go out and make a big deal about lighting a menorah and putting on tefillin and handing out Shabbos candles. That will bring us to the point where, as Rabbi Akiva told his colleagues when they heard the great chaotic celebratory noise of Rome, and he said, if that's what is coming to those who transgress, can you only imagine what Hashem has stored for those of us who fulfill His His will? That will bring us to a point that we can all be stable and calm and serene in our own land. And that will be in a response to the great miraculous shofar that's going to announce Mashiach's arrival. The announcement of the coming of Mashiach, the, the one who will announce the coming of Mashiach, who will tell us Mashiach is here, it should all happen immediately.